Welcome to the Working Spouse Club with Catherine Prince and Joanna DeMont. How are you today, Catherine? I'm awesome, Joanna. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a, a gorgeous day here in North Carolina, and I am excited. I say that a lot, but I really am excited today about our guest. Marla Bautista works with the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, where she supports the research and outreach activities of the organization. She's also a TEDx speaker, an author of two books, and a social entrepreneur who co-founded and leads the Bautista Project, a nonprofit that uplifts homeless community members in Tampa, Florida. She is also an Army spouse and so much more. How are you today, Marla? Hey, guys. I'm good. How are you? You know we're doing well and so happy to have you on and just dig in. Catherine, what's our first question? What do we always ask everyone? Marla, I'm curious. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? So funny story. I guess it's not really funny, but I actually wanted to be a writer. Um, I loved writing short stories and poems. It was a way that I can escape like some of the trials and tribulations that I had went through as a child. Um, so what I used to do is I used to hide in my closet. I had like this tiny walk-in closet and I would sit in there and I would read books. Um, I would read books. And when I read the book, I would write in pencil on the wall, the name of the book and the date when I finished it. So I was like all involved in like chapter books. And I don't know if you guys heard of this series, but Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High was kind of my thing. Um, so kind of giving my age away there, but um, I love to read, but I would also write short stories and poetry. And I would write these stories that were fun and engaging and safe because I wanted to create these worlds that were safe and inviting for everyone. And so I always wanted to be a writer. That is really amazing. And you were tracking what you were reading before that became what everybody does in the new year. Yes. So many books a month. That's really interesting that you wanted to be a writer. We've had so many writers on or potential writers, but poetry is, is also interesting. I, I got to get some more about that for sure. But before we move into all those fun things, can you tell us a little bit about what your career path has been like? Um, my career path has been this crazy tapeworm of a roller coaster. Couldn't even explain it in a straight line if I wanted to. I have no idea. I started off working in hospitality in my 20s. Um, before that, I worked at a pizza joint. I actually started working in the early mid 90s at a pizza shop. And um, then later on, I uh, started working in hospitality in my, my early 20s. And that's actually where I met my husband. I worked at a hotel as an executive administrative assistant you know, they used to have the guys there all the time, the army guys, they were in the reserves and they would go do training. Right. And so all the guys would ask me like, Hey, where do you uh, go to party on, you know, they're new in town. Where do you go party on Friday nights and all the cool things. And I'm like, I don't know. On Friday nights, I go do laundry. You know, I said, if you guys, any of you guys want to go do laundry with me, you're welcome to. And so of course, all the guys were like, absolutely not. We're not doing that. Um, but one guy was like, sure, I'll go do laundry with you. And then 30 days later, we were married. Side note, he hates doing laundry. So didn't know that was a pickup line, uh, but I know now. <laughs> so that's kind of where my career path started. But actually, I I am a freelance writer um, by trade. I do make money as, as a writer, as many other spouses. Um, we're gig workers, right? We do a lot of gig work because unfortunately, we can't find stable employment or tenure in our careers because of, you know, our transient lifestyle. I love that you have that one month to married story. I have like three dates, an 11 month deployment, and then moved into his house and we got married like a month later story. So 
it's very common when we're having these conversations to hear that. Here we all are married. <laughs> and um, I think gig work is like you're really speaking to something that Joanna and I talk all the time. And I, I don't think we've talked about that. And I'd love to dig into it because you're right. It's so difficult to build a traditional career as a military spouse. Uh, the gig space seems like a natural choice when you're constantly dealing with everything that comes with it. So how did you initially transition into the gig world um, from, you know, executive administrative assistant? Um, how did you, how did you make that jump? Was it the result of a PCS or, or something like that? Yeah. So I actually, you know, sought out, you know, traditional employment um, in my field, which is communications. Um, I have a bachelor's in communications. That's again, I always love to write. So that was kind of natural for me to transition into that mode. I literally went to radio stations, TV stations, and, and applied for jobs, and I was never even offered an interview. So many people would say, hey, unfortunately, you don't know the area, you're not local, um, you haven't been local long enough, or um, any of these excuses, I call them, uh, to not hire me. And I even offered to volunteer at a radio station just to get the experience because I needed that experience um, in the field. And unfortunately that never happened. Um, and so I had a friend who was like, I write for this baby blog. Do you want to, you know, do a few articles? Um, and I was like, of course. And um, you might've heard of it, Sleeping Baby. Uh, Sleeping Baby is a company, they were on Shark Tank and they had uh, the baby onesie that you could like flop around in. And so like you can move your arms and stuff in the in the onesie. So it was like the, the child can move around. And so I actually started doing my gig work with that company. That was like my first paid piece. And so I was the coolest person ever. I was so excited for the opportunity. The pay wasn't great, but the opportunity outweighed the pay all day because they gave me an opportunity to grow in my field and to learn. And I got paid. So that was super cool. So you're able to kind of maintain that professional identity or who you want to be by starting out with this gig work. That's so interesting. And we will have to dig into to what spouses are doing what and where the gig work is. So you went so you went into this doing some some freelance writing and you still do that because it's it's a great way to to throw and you get to kind of experience your passion. I, I love that. So you get to keep doing that, honing your craft. How does that translate into, I want, I want to know about the TEDx experience. That's where I'm getting at. I know our audience does too. I, I need to know about the TEDx experience. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I've actually done lots of public speaking. I've uh, spoke at numerous colleges about my background story and, you know, how that led me to success today. Um, I experienced homelessness as a young adult. And so, you know, people want to hear that story of, you know, the rags to riches type stories. Um, so I often speak about my journey from homelessness to success. And so my TEDx talk was about homelessness and how, you know, how we can solve homelessness um, because it is solvable. And so I was like looking for speaking opportunities and that was actually on my vision board in, I want to say 2020 at the end to going into 2021, I said, I'm going to do a TEDx talk. I literally guess I manifested it because literally that year I got a TEDx talk. It's actually not as hard as people think it is to get into 
um, you can literally Google um, TEDx events near you and they will come up. And some of them are looking for speakers. They have specific themes. Um, and if you're willing to do a talk and you qualify and you pass all their prerequisites, then you get a TED talk. And so I was super excited to have the opportunity um, to talk more about homelessness, um, because my goal is to not only support those who are experiencing homelessness, but also to raise awareness within our community or um, unhoused, because it's a normal thing in our communities, all of our communities. Um, and I think we separate people by categories, right? And we do this all the time, especially in the military community, right? We're like, oh, they're that rank or, oh, they're this rank. So you can't associate with them. And we do that in civilian life as well. We're saying, oh, well, we're this and they're that. So we can't associate with them. But there's this weird commonality, like we're all humans. I don't know if you're human, but I'm human. So it's like, can we just be humans together? That's kind of my thing. But the TED Talk was super exciting and nerve wracking. And I've done, like I said, so many talks. I've done so many speeches. But to stand on the TED stage, I'm not going to lie, it was intimidating. Because it was like, that's the big moment, right? You know, all the talks, all the things were great and amazing. But that moment was like an opportunity for the world to hear what I had to say. And so that to me was, that was huge. So huge and so impressive. I actually watched your TED Talk yesterday. So um, in preparation for our talk today, I wanted to, you know, be really informed and, um, really enjoyed it. Um, I personally have family members who've experienced, um, homelessness. And so it, it definitely resonated. Um, I have, you know, family members with mental health issues that have led to that. And, and then, so it's something that I think more education and awareness needs to be brought to, um, the community that, you know, this is very much something that happens and there's, there's a lot that can be done. I'm curious when it came to the TED talk, how much preparation did you do leading up to it? Was it like weeks and weeks and weeks? And um, I say this as somebody you've said numerous times, oh yeah, I like uh, public speaking. And Joanna is an incredible public speaker. My biggest shortcoming, I black out any time that I am standing in front of a group of people. So just so everyone knows, do not reach out to me to do any group presentations. I am not your girl. We've got two people on this call who would be incredible that I can back. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious, what prep work did you do? So as a writer, naturally, I wrote out my speech, right? And so I broke that speech down into different parts on how I would speak it. You know, naturally, we have a speaking cadence, right? And so I broke that speech down in a way where it sounded great um, to me. And I practiced in front of my kids, um, 13, 11, and eight who did not care, but they were the audience that I had. Um, so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And it was a 13 minute speech, but trying to memorize 13 minutes is a lot of information. Um, and so I I got really good at it. I practiced for months and I probably three, three or more months I practiced. Um, and funny thing is I'm very well scripted. So if I'm speaking on script, I am amazing. I, and maybe that's what, that's what you need as well. Catherine is, is speaking on script is amazing. Right. But if you ask me some random question, like what, 
what are you saying? I, I can't think right now. But scripted, I can I can talk about things, right? And so I was so ready for this, right? I had my script, I had my notes. I even printed them like index card paper, but larger so that I could see them at a quick flash and put my notes and everything was amazing, right? I was ready. I had, you know, my placement. I was um, going to be using like a lapel mic and all this stuff. So I was super ready, right? Go to the event get ready to go on stage, go up the stairs to get ready to go on stage. And they're like, oh my God, the mic's broken. <laughs> We're going to have to give you a handheld mic. My notes are this big. They're about almost the size of half the sheet, half a sheet of paper. And I'm like, oh, some. And then my, my brain was like glitching. My brain was like short circuiting because how am I going to hold this microphone and these notes and make contact with the audience? And I wasn't planning on that. I, like I said, I'm very scripted. And so I, that wasn't something I thought about. And so I'm just like, Oh, what do I do? But obviously I was on stage at that point. So I'm like, go with it. So I memorized my speech. Unfortunately, when I got on stage, my speech was no longer memorized. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> But <laughs> it was like amazing, but it was, it was super awesome because it came out of my mouth and onto, you know, into the audience and in on stage and, and throughout, and it sounded decent outside of my heavy laborious breathing. Other than that, it was great. I mean, it was a big deal. All the lights were flashing on you. And it was, like I said, it was the big stage. It was that big moment. And you have this big red timer in your face and you're like, Oh, and then one thing I didn't ask was, is the timer counting up or down? Had no idea. It was crazy. But like I said, I got through it and I'm excited. I would love to do another TED Talk in the future. I think I would be more prepared. Um, but it was a very intense moment. It sounds like you were incredibly prepared and then life threw some curveballs at you as they life tends to do to us poor military spouses. I laughed so hard at the heavy breathing because I edit the podcast and like, let me tell you, it is horrifying. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm always like, Jana, Jana has the most beautiful voice in the world. And then there's Catherine. And like, I'm like always over here breathing heavy, making weird shrill noises. But um, I'm curious, how did your career change after the TED Talk? What, what happened um, following it? My career changed because there were a lot of people that truly saw me as a subject matter expert within the the unhoused community space, and they wanted to hear from me. Um, like I said, I've spoken to lots of different colleges. I've had the opportunity to speak to South Texas College, OU, um, and it's just been a, an awesome opportunity to, like I said, educate other people because I feel like what I'm saying is unique uh, because there are a lot of stories. We hear lots of things about homelessness. We hear lots of, we're preconditioned to information. All of us, we've gone to school, we learned certain things and that that's just how life is. Um, but unfortunately, there's like so many other things that we're just unaware of within that community that could help all of us down here at this level solve homelessness. Because a lot of times we leave things up to the government and we're saying, you know, they can do this. They're supposed to do this. They're supposed to do that. But what about us? What about you walking past them every single day in your own neighborhood? You know, how... How can you positively impact their life? You know, that was a huge change for me. And I'm honored to continue to be that voice um, for our community, especially within the homeless, um, the unhoused veteran community. That is very important um, because, again, we have these preconceived notions of what homelessness is and why individuals experience it. Um, but a lot of times those preconceived notions aren't actually true. 
And so I think that if we come together as a village, you know, we can better support, you know, our friends in need. I'm glad that you segued there because you had said earlier that homelessness is solvable. And I wanted to learn more about that. You talked a little bit about what's going on in our neighborhoods. What can we do? How is it solvable? Here's the funny thing. I didn't make that up. There's actually a study that was done in 2010 uh, by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it was published by the New York Times. They did a study that proved that homelessness was solvable, and they, they said the amount of money it would cost and how long it would take. So if you guys are ready to be blown away, they said in 2010, it would cost $20 billion to solve homelessness and that it would take 10 years. I'm like, well, by golly. This is 2024, and we've given more than $20 billion to nonprofit organizations supporting unhoused community members. So why is the number increasing? Why have we not solved the problem? My conclusion, and this is something I did make up, we don't want to. Um, and the reason why I say that is because more than 100,000 jobs depend on homelessness in America. There are so many different factors that we're, we're not considering that are supporting homelessness, which is crazy. We're talking about our criminal justice system. We're talking about social services. We're talking about all these different aspects that actually, if homelessness didn't exist, neither would those jobs. And so there are a lot of organizations and I talk about, you know, why isn't this being solved? There are some organizations, their job isn't to solve it. They never said they were gonna solve it. They said we were gonna support those who are experiencing homelessness. Now, what that support looks like, that's up to them, right? They said they would support them. Others said we would provide mental health care. Others said we would provide food. But who said that they would solve it? And so that's where I've taken on that role is saying, I want to solve homelessness. I don't want to perpetuate this cycle by keeping them impoverished. But in order to raise individuals and communities out of poverty, it's through education, right? So we've all got to be informed, not just them. So we put things on their backs and say, well, you need to get a job or you need to learn how to do this or you need to learn about that. Well, what about us? There are lots of things that we need to learn in order to better support those individuals. Um, when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about substance abuse, you know, I, I hear all the time, Individuals say, well, I'm not going to help them because I uh, every time I go past there, they're drinking or they're, they're using drugs. I said, you know what? That is so crazy and unique, right? Because there's no such person who has four walls and lives in a home who drinks. There's no such thing, right? You have the opportunity to be an alcoholic inside of your home in secret. So no one can see and judge you. But unfortunately, they don't have those same four walls. So imagine if someone, you know, came into your home and judged you the same way you're judging those individuals. There are people that go to work every day and have nice homes who use drugs. But because I see that person on the street doing it, for some reason, I'm so much, I feel so much more, you know, I'm better than them because I have a home. And so a lot of the reasons they're out there may not be because of that drug use or because of that alcoholism or because of the mental health issues. Sometimes, you know, they've had a death in the family, a death of the breadwinner. They've been in foster care since they were a child and they were, you know, exited into homelessness. And, you know, I always tell people, imagine you trying to go out and sleep on the streets. You tell me if you can go sleep on a busy street tonight no matter the weather, without any drugs or alcohol or medicine or anything, and you'd be fine. You wouldn't. 
a lot of times that's a coping mechanism because they're out there and they develop these habits because just like all of us, I developed this weird habit of going to Starbucks every time I'm stressed, right? But it's some, we all do. We all have a thing, right? Everyone has a thing. Um, and so I think that it's time that we accept that we're all human and that we are all a part of this same community. They're not in a different community. If they live in your community, they are a part of your community. Decisions that are made in your community also impact them. They also impact you. And so I think once we start to realize that, you know, it's cheaper. I hate to say this. You know, there's a thing that says it's cheaper to keep her, right? It's cheaper to help those who are unhoused versus not. It costs us more money to put them in prisons for them to constantly go to the emergency room versus getting them the support and help that they need and empowering them to do better for themselves. It's actually cheaper to do that. So I can see why your nonprofit's talking about uplifting people. You're taking them from where they are and and putting them in a place where they can be housed, where they can have a normal life. As a person in recovery, what you said really, really stuck out because when I see people who are drinking on the streets, who that's that's a not yet to me. That's not a not me. That's a not yet. So I, what you're what you're doing is really powerful and makes me want to get out there and, and do some work for sure. I love that. And thank you for saying that. I love that analogy, not yet, because we separate ourselves and we say that couldn't be us, but you're saying not yet, that I'm not saying it's not possible, but anything is possible, good or bad. And so I love that. Thank you. I think uh, not enough people realize how close it can be to be unhoused. You know, seeing medical diagnoses pop up, especially related to mental health, you know, some of them show up later and, you know, you may have already gone to college and been in a role and and then that arrives. And next thing you know, you're, you're no longer have, uh, you know, a stable home environment or, you know, working in financial services. It's a scary reality. How many families are in a vulnerable position um, just based on where their finances are at. And so I think really speaks to a great point that this is a reality for many and also could be a reality for even more with just one emergency or one medical diagnosis or, you know, it's scary to think about how close it is for so many people. And I, I think about the military community and um, you've spoken about, you know, veterans. I'm curious, have you seen anything related to spouses? Part of what I did in research for our conversation today was look up to see if I could find any statistics about homelessness and military spouses. And one of the things that I discovered was that there is a very real issue with what they've titled abandoned spouses and um, being a member of um, spouse groups. I, I do see posts like this where uh, a spouse is unfortunately dependent, hate that word, on their partner because of how difficult it is to build a career. And then to be left by that person and not have access to you know, the resources that that person was providing for them, their children, really scary situation. And so I'm curious, do you, do you have any thoughts or um, any insights on that specifically? Absolutely. Um, so Blue Star Families did a survey. Um, they do an annual survey uh, yearly of the military lifestyle, uh, military family lifestyle survey. And I believe 2022, they discovered that 16% of their respondents, uh, military families had experienced uh, low 
food security. We're not talking about that enough. And like you brought up the point about being dependent, it's not something that we thrived for. We didn't thrive for this dependency. A lot of us left our careers. A lot of us left our jobs to move to new places. Um, and unfortunately, we're not, we weren't able to sustain our independence. And I do talk about this a lot as well, is that loss of identity, right? We're not just losing our paycheck, we're losing ourselves. A lot of times I, I tell the story of me moving from place to place to place. I lived in Hawaii. I had a baby in Hawaii. When my son turned one, I moved to Germany. When we were leaving Germany, I now had a toddler and a one-year-old moving to Colorado. When we left Colorado, I now had a, a toddler, a bigger kid, and another one-year-old. So there was this weird cycle of baby stuff happening <laughs> that, um, you know, it was a period, right? Where all I was doing was I was now this mom. That's That was my identity. I was this mom and this caregiver. I remember the first time I tried to get a hospitality job before I had kids when we had first PCS and I was going, trying to get back into my field. And I remember taking this job in um, Hawaii. I was offered a job and I remember the older spouses in our community was like, well, how are you going to do that when they're getting ready to deploy? And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, how are you going to talk to, to your husband? And I was like, I mean, if he calls, he calls. And this is before like Facebook or anything like that. And I was like, if he calls or he can write me letters. And then I remember there was this big deal about, well, your husband should be able to get a hold of you at any time of day or night. I didn't know this, right? So I was slowly being groomed into this military spouse, right? This identity of a military spouse, which my sole job was to support the service member. And I literally, I'm not going to lie to you guys, I did not realize how bad I had fallen into this identity crisis until I found out that my we had experienced infidelity. Two kids down the line, I'm doing everything that I could to make this individual happy, and this happens. And then I'm like, I gave everything, right? I've given everything that I had, and clearly it wasn't enough, right? And so I always say now, you know, 16 years down the line into this marriage of mine, don't lose yourself. That was like my biggest thing for young spouses. Don't lose yourself. Because like you said, we see them online. And so there's this big, there's this big thing that you can't ask for help because we're going to judge you. We're going to degrade you. Um, we're going to say you're mismanaging your money. You're mismanaging your marriage. You're mismanaging your children. And so unfortunately, then we're stuck in this secret cycle of shame, right? And I always say, what you see about us as military spouses and families, you will see the pictures. And my family is a part of this problem as well. You'll see us in the flag dresses and my kids waving American flags and me holding the cute sign when he comes back from deployment. What you don't see is the financial abuse or the, the emotional abuse or the the loneliness or the identity loss, you don't see any of that stuff when we're talking about, you know, who we are as spouses. Most of the time, we don't talk about that. Even to each other, we don't say, you know what, I've actually lost myself and I, I don't know what to do. I've never actually had a conversation with my friends about that. But you know what conversations I have had is 20 years down the line, oh, my spouse wants a divorce and I literally have nothing. I have nothing. I have nowhere to go. I have no money. I have no, I have no home. 
we have no education and no career. That's not fair. That's not fair. But this life was never set up to support us. It just wasn't. And so that is my my unsolicited advice to young spouses is just never lose yourself. Maintain your career, your education, and do all of the things that you want to do. Don't ever lose that because at the end of the day, you are inside of you. And only you can make you happy. Um, You can't be dependent on another individual to make you happy. I want to thank you so much for being so genuine and authentic in what you discussed. I mean, these are the things that we talk about behind closed doors. This is, you know, I can sit here and what you've said has been so validating. And unfortunately, I've had the same conversations. We've all had those conversations. What I, there's two things that you said that really, that I'm going to, I'm going to keep. One of them was that sustained independence. And the other piece was grooming. We talked with um, another guest about how I felt like I was in an abusive relationship and you used the term grooming and you used it appropriately. That really sticks. It's, it's our reality. Let's be honest. Um, And the reason why I'm being honest this wasn't always my stand, right? As a new military spouse, we all jumped in, big smiles on our face. What can we do? How can we help, right? Like I said, I, I met the the older spouses. And so there was this thing, I don't know if you guys are well aware of like army life, but in the army, we have like AFTB classes, which is army family team building classes. And so as a new spouse, the older spouses took me under their wing. I would go to all these classes to learn how to be a military spouse. I would learn about the LES. I would learn about volunteering. I would learn about all these things on how to be a military spouse. My life was consumed with gift wrapping at the PX um, during Christmas time, car washes and bake sales, right? I have all of the pictures. It's so funny looking back and like, oh, all the Krispy Kreme donut sales you can do. Um, but that was me because that's what I thought what is what I was supposed to be doing. That was my white picket fence life, I thought. And then it wasn't until that bubble burst that I realized, no, I was just being put here to care for this individual. And so what happens is leading to homelessness, what happens is whether it's the spouse or the service member, unfortunately, we didn't learn about ourselves early on enough. We didn't learn who we are. Like I said, I got married in 30 days. I was young. I had no idea. They say usually in the first 90 days, you're lying. The first 90 days of dating, you're you're so nice. You're all your best of best of the best of the best, right? It's after that time where you really get to know each other. And I was already married and my husband was already off to Iraq almost by then. It, it was almost this marriage was forged into this thing. And I, I had no choice but to fall in line. You know, what's interesting is that I had that same like Marine Corps family team building experience. It's the same, the same in the Marine Corps. But Catherine is not. So she's not being acculturated in the way that I was. So it's interesting to see where she's coming from. And I hope that she can sustain her independence. Oh my gosh, try and keep me down. Um, I I joke that I was raised by a woman who taught me that I breathe fire. So, um, you know, I'm so fiercely independent and to come into this lifestyle has been very interesting. And um, honestly, again, Joanna and I talk all the time. We talked on the phone for like an hour yesterday where I, I was like, I just don't, like I... I didn't get that experience where somebody showed me like what I'm supposed to be doing as a military spouse. And I'm like, you're, you're here to keep me from getting canceled, Joanna. Cause I just say whatever I think I'm just like, this is bullshit. Like 
how the heck are we all like, do we need to get up, go, you know, march on Washington and do a protest? Like, uh, we need to do something. And, and she's over here like, oh, girl, like, you know, you probably would have benefited from attending the class. But I'm over here also thinking like, you know, maybe it's good that I wasn't groomed. You know, maybe that's a good thing um, for my mental health, because part of me wishes that I wasn't you know, radically pushing against the constraints of this lifestyle. I wish that I could accept it more than I I am currently because I do think I'd be happier if I wasn't constantly fighting against it. Um, But it's a very... It's a very complex topic. And I, I just can't thank you enough for being honest about your experiences. And, um, you know, I, I just think about the the feedback that Joanna and I get from our listeners when they say, thank you for actually saying this out loud. I've thought this forever. Um, and identity is, is, is something I've wanted to talk about in one of these conversations. I'm so glad you brought it up because I feel like I'm on the third phase of my identity in my marriage because I had a strong identity. I lived overseas. I worked overseas. I was a badass. I backpacked through India by myself. I hitchhiked through Ecuador. I was incredible. And that person is not who I am today because I couldn't do that and be in a marriage with my spouse. I had to find a new identity. I had to find a new Catherine. And I did. And I liked who that person was. And she was a professional and she was climbing the corporate ladder and she was crushing it in DC. And here I'm again, phase three. And it's like, okay, rebuilding time. And so I'm curious, you've clearly had to do the work of rebuilding your identity. What advice would you give to listeners, to me, as we are in the process of figuring out who we are again, what is helpful? Maintaining a sense of self. We can do that by journaling, um, by, by getting our thoughts out on paper, and also by doing the things you love. So I tell people, even now, it's, our lives are crazy, busy, we're doing all the things, but I always tell people, do something every single day that you love, even if it's for five minutes, even if it costs you money. Because some people will say, well, you know, you can't be spending all that money on Starbucks. If Starbucks makes me happy, Catherine, for that five minutes of my life, I'm drinking the Starbucks. Um, and so I, I want to encourage spouses to always do that, because if you maintain that peace that sense of self, then you will you will have something to hold on to when times get tough. That's one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn the hard way because I gave everything that I have, right? And you can't pour from an empty cup. My cup was empty. So there was I wasn't even in the cup. I had given it all out to my children, to the army, to my service member. They had nothing left. I had nothing for me. I was on autopilot. I I was on autopilot for years, just cooking and cleaning and driving and going and doing and you know what I mean? For years. And so I was a mere shadow of myself. And one thing I want to say, I was actually, I interviewed a death doula before, right? I don't know if you guys know what a death doula is, but there's it's an individual that will go and sit bedside with someone who is on their way transitioning uh, to eternity, She said that one of the biggest things that she hears about um, when speaking with those individuals is they always wanted to go back and do something different. They always wanted to do more with their life. She said that was her biggest takeaway was to live today as if it is your last, because it absolutely could be. You don't want to die with regrets. And there's so many people that die with regrets. I remember someone saying, they died at the age of 25, but lived until 75. 
And you're like, what? My life ended, but yet kept going. And you don't want that. I don't want that. I have so many things that I want to do with my life. So many. And yes, I put them aside for so long for external reasons, but internally I have to find myself and get back to who I am. So I love that you said the phases. It's okay to have those phases. It's okay to have those seasons. Acknowledge those seasons and build from that. That whole bloom where you're planted thing, it's good and I hate it. And the reason <laughs> I say that is because yes, you know, bloom where you're planted, right? But bloom means bloom into yourself, not bloom into what the hell other people want you to be or what this culture wants you to be. Continue to grow yourself. If the if the military says you have to move to Japan and you hate it, bloom within yourself. Find something you love there, but internally. You know what I mean? Like find something that's inside of yourself that you can explore externally. Don't ever lose who you are. And so I think, I think the analogy bloom where your planet means be okay, wherever the fuck we put you. Right. I don't like that. I don't like that for us. I'm sorry. Excuse my language. I don't like that for us. So I don't take it in that sense of bloom where your planet. I don't like you're You're basically saying be quiet and be okay. No. Bloom where your planet for me means explore your internal identity and exude that wherever you are. What if to all of our spouses listening, what a different experience if we approached the spouses who are junior to us, not in rank, obviously, but in age and experience as a military spouse. What if we approach them with this knowledge rather than the grooming? What a different experience this could be as a military spouse to be to be taught this instead, to be taught to hold on to your identity, to take care of yourself, to love yourself, to put yourself first so that you can take care of your family. What if we did that instead of saying, you know, keep quiet, shut up, you know, support your service member, you don't matter. What a different experience it would be. Absolutely. There probably also would be a lot less military spouses. Um, But in all honesty, it would be a really it would be a different experience. And the the better we are, the happier we are with ourselves, the better off our family will be. I work with an organization where we talk about the strengths of the spouse and we focus on the spouse and we don't talk about, we don't say our last names and we don't talk about rank. I've watched that organization change from a cardboardy leadership seminar to something that really impacts the spouses and creates a safe space for that identity kind of exploration. But every single time I talk to somebody, I tell them they have to remove the word just to be like, I'm just a spouse. Like, no, you're not. You are so many other things. And you have to tell me what they are, but you can't say mom or a military spouse or, (laughs) Or yeah, you have to tell me who you are. And you can, every time you get to move, that's kind of an opportunity to learn something new about yourself. When I look back at the places we were stationed, there are so many cool things that I learned to do that are for me that I'll get forever, right? I'll always know how to scuba dive. I'll always know like a little bit of German, a little bit of Japanese. I'll always be able to walk into a room and to relate to somebody in some fashion because of where they've lived or what they've done. But there's also those times in my life that I consider pretty dark because I had the only identity I had was 
was mom or spouse and dealing with deployments and waiting for those phone calls. I love that. I too am not a huge fan of Blue Warrior Planet, but I, I like that spin a lot. I'm going to start introducing myself as, hi, I'm Catherine. I breathe fire. I love that for you. I think you should for sure. But I think I love that you said that about I'm just, I'm not just. One of the things I learned along the way was not even putting that in your first sentence, military spouse. No, when you're, why are you saying that at a job interview? Does that qualify you? You're, you're a military spouse? No. What What is your education? You went to school. You did these things. You are amazing. What are you? Who are you? You know what I mean? Not, I'm a military spouse. I And so someone said, I can't, I'm not sure if this was in a book I read by Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes, my favorite book is Year of Yes. If you need to find out who you are, take it from her. She is the most phenomenal writer in the history of writers to me. Um, But she was always talking about this guilt, this mom guilt that she had and stuff like that. It was, I'm not just a mom. Being a mom wasn't an accomplishment. Anybody can have a baby. How is this your accomplishment in life? Did you go to school for that? Like, did you... Is this a professional thing that you've done? Being a military spouse isn't an accomplishment. You fell in love with somebody and you got married. The things that are accomplishments are things you worked hard to achieve, right? Pregnancy and having a baby is kind of a natural evolution uh, for most people, right? Um, and and yes, I get it. If you if you weren't able to have a baby naturally and you had to go through through lots of different things, then yes, that could be a sense of accomplishment for you. But for many of us, it, it is a natural occurrence that have happened. But me overcoming homelessness was an accomplishment. Me getting a degree and through all the trials and tribulations, that was an accomplishment. You backpacking through the other world, the other world, that is an accomplishment, right? Those things are accomplishments. Plus overcoming addiction and substance abuse, that is an accomplishment, Right. We, for some reason, our accomplishments are now transformed into, I survived a PCS. Like, I hope everyone survives a PCS because that's, it's it's weird if you don't. It's super weird if you don't. Like, that's a whole different conversation. But you know what I mean? Like, how is that your accomplishment in life? How is, you know, these natural things that happen in accomplishment be great? Because being great is being great. You're great, Catherine. You know, Jolie, you're great, right? And we're great because of who we are, not because of what we've done for other people. Self-worth is based on ourselves. It's kind of a funny thing. Marla, this has been incredible. I I feel like we went into some like really deep content that I'm so excited to share with our audience. Um, and again, like I'm so excited that we are saying these things out loud and having these conversations and showing spouses that they can feel this way. They can talk about this. They don't have to keep it inside and keep it to themselves and feel ashamed of it. So I can't thank you enough for joining us. Um, before we hop off, I do want to know, is there anything you want us to promote in um, episode notes, a website or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, you can put uh, the Bautista Project Inc.org, which is our nonprofit, if they want to learn more about um, unhoused community members or support them here in Tampa. Um, I think that's always something nice to mention. I don't have anything particular. I always do this for the audience. Um, I don't always, you know, I don't want to promote things all the time because my goal is to educate and, and support other people. Absolutely. 
We have really reached the end of our time. Unfortunately, uh, this conversation has been so real. Thank you so much. Is there anything that we have missed that you'd like our audience to know? Hold on to you. Embrace you, I think, is the most important thing. Whether you're a working spouse, a traditional working spouse, whether you're a gig worker, I think embracing you and never losing sight of who you are or who you want to be is the most important thing you can do for yourself. That's some powerful words. And I hope that everyone who's listening takes that and and owns it and embraces it. Thank you for joining us for the Working Spouse Club. We look forward to bringing you a new guest each week as we explore the world of military spouse employment. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Working Spouse Club. As always, if you'd like to learn more about today's guest and what we discussed, check out our episode notes. You'll find links there. You'll also find a link to Joanna's website, Green Zone Corporate Training. She's here to help you attract, hire, and retain military-connected staff, and she's fabulous at it, as well as a link to my website, The Spouse Solution. I'm here for you when it comes to direct hire placement of mid- to senior-level military spouses. Joanna and I would love to hear from you, so if you have any thoughts, feel free to send them over to us. LinkedIn is a great place for that. If you're interested in joining us for an episode to talk about your professional journey as a military spouse, don't be shy in reaching out. And if you're an employer interested in hiring from this amazing community and want to talk about that as well, we'd love to connect with you. Be on the lookout for our next episode. We're looking forward to sharing another great guest with you soon.